Welcome to the Living the Writing Life podcast. My guest today is Cecilia Titchy, author of the Val and Roddy DeVere Gilded series, mystery crime novels that pulse with turn-of-the-century American life and death. A native of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Cecilia is an award-winning author and professor of English and American Studies Emirata at Vanderbilt University. Her nonfiction and fiction books focus on the decades of America's industrial titans, the queens of society, and the Gilded Age. She enjoys membership and posting in Facebook's The Gilded Age Society. In today's conversation, we'll be talking about why she set her novels in the Gilded Age time period and what inspired her to create the Val DeVere character. Welcome to the show, Cecilia. Thank you, Nancy. Delighted to be here and to talk about the Gilded Age then and now. Because, well, as you doubtless know, we are regularly told that we are in a second Gilded Age. And so my books kind of echo back and forth from the late 1800s until these early 21st century years. So many similarities, technological revolution, then mechanical, now digital, um, the Google and, and Facebook and Twitter of now were the steel and oil and the railroads and the electricity of then. So society jolted, um, awakened, scared, tumultuous times then and now. So for, for that complex of reasons, I, I was, was that first Gilded Age bit me hard, but in relation to our own contemporary moment. Well, you, you've answered the first question. I didn't even have a chance to ask it. Um, you know, I, I did want to, to focus a little bit on uh, your newest book, which is A Gilded Drowning Pool. Now, this is, I believe, the fifth book in the Roddy and Valdivere Gilded Age series, which premiered with A Gilded Death released in 2021. And I have to tell you, when I looked at those numbers and I'm like, okay, this is 2023, um, that means she's written five books in, what, two and a half, barely two years to allow for production time. I'm impressed right off the bat. So, you know, I... I as you said, you're you're fascinated with with the era with that particular era, but I also wondered, um, and I wasn't sure about this. Did you start writing the nonfiction books about the era and then went into the novels, or were they kind of a simultaneous uh, work in progress? Uh, you're right. The first time I had spent uh, working in the classroom and the library at Vanderbilt for many years uh, became increasingly drawn to the Gilded Age years. And so um, a book on, on seven, uh, they're called progressive um, era people who, who were afraid of their own era and worked for reform. And then a book on Jack London, because I thought, oh, he really was a reformer. Um, Fiction, The Call of the Wild. Yes, all those sled dogs strapped together. Weren't they a kind of parable of industrial workers kind of strapped into the factories? Wasn't he trying to show his readers at bestseller um, what had gone wrong with, with the period he was living in? So he turned to fiction and I then, after a lot of work in, in nonfiction in that era and research, um, so that it's kind of, it gets in your bones. And I thought, let me see whether I might do something of what Jack London was after. That is, through a story with strong characters, you get into the mind of your reader and you start to see things the way the reader and the author do. 
and they become partners, really. So that's when I turned to fiction, when I had done a lot of nonfiction work and research in the period. Yeah, and I, I can see that working because, you know, a lot of times people will say, oh, I don't want to read this nonfiction book about that period. It sounds very historical and everything. But then when you present them with a story, just like little children, okay? It's like, <laughs> give us a story. Oh, we're we're pulled into it. And, and almost subliminally, we're getting the message, you know, the other message instead of just this is what the story is, the conflict. But we're also getting the deeper story behind the story itself. I think that's right. And I think in particular, and let me offer not an apology, but a rationale for mystery crime fiction. No matter whether you're on the soft side or the, or the most bloody side, the premise really is that there was a better era in the past or the possibilities of a better time to come. And so when at the, at the conclusion of a mystery crime novel, um, most of them conclude with a resolution, justice is going to be restored or going forward, uh, better days are ahead. So sometimes, uh, Crime fiction is dismissed as genre fiction. Oh, we like it, but isn't it light, lightweight? I think the premise about injustice and justice um, uh, is that underlies crime fiction uh, is what holds the readers. What is the grip uh, in, in politically tumultuous times when everybody's got a grievance and everybody would like to see a better world. Absolutely, and and you're right about the ability to get to the end and have a resolution. You know, I I'm I'm not a fan of the super bloody stuff. It's like okay, I'm a big coward when it comes to that. But the lighter stuff or things where they don't go deeply into the blood and gore end of it. But you do see how how it gets resolved and you see the interplay. And a lot of times, too, the 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 good guys have a little bit of a conflict, even even themselves with whatever's going on. And that is just that is so realistic. You know, it's realistic to what's going on now. I mean, we do want to feel that the bad guys are going to get caught. The good guys are going to triumph and the world will be a better place. I mean. That is what we want. And and I'm I'm so gratified to hear you say exactly what you just said, uh, because uh, the conflict that characters might have um, between and among themselves and within their an individual psyche, that is kind of the engine um, of, of a story. These are not morality plays where you have sort of the good angel and the bad angel and they just come on stage and each one with horns, one with wings and do their, do their number. Um, we're far beyond that. So maybe it's after Sigmund Freud, we all understand there is a subconscious. There are motives that sort of swirl deep within but the, the novels need to bring them out. Not so much that the story's momentum is, is halted or detoured. That's, the, you know, that's the, the task that I have or any mystery crime writer has. You've got to keep the engine of the story running and at the same time, show the characters in full dimensions well, Nancy, if I may say, not to hog our time here, but one, one point. Some mystery novels, crime novels, and you know this, work like a clockworks. They are they're mechanical inventions. Ten minutes after you finish the book, you remember what a clever plot, but you don't remember who, who those characters were, their names, who they were. Those of us who write, attempt to write, Fuller, 
fully developed characters have a whole different set of obligations, challenges, and opportunities. Um, we want fully developed characters, and we look for readers who match up with our own, our own goals, our own um, aspirations as we draw our characters. Well, and that takes me right into the character of Val DeVere. Um, it seems uh, like in the novels that she and her husband, Roddy, they're partners uh, in marriage, they're partners in their crime-solving activities. And, and I have to tell you, it reminds me a little bit of the Thin Man movies, which I'm a huge fan of. Every time they come on, I watch it. But um, what, I, what I was curious about is, is how strong of a role does Val play when it comes to solving the cases in your novels? Because in The Thin Man, you know, it was primarily, you know, Myrna Loy was there, but she didn't play as major of a role, you know? So so how strong of a role does Val play when it comes to solving these crimes? Well, when I hear you bring up The Thin Man series, I thought, bingo, because um, there they are with their little dog, Asta, and uh, uh, Val and Roddy have their, their little dog, Velvet, a little French bulldog. And by the way, in the Gilded Age, Alva Vanderbilt Belmont had a French bulldog. And so, just to say, uh, but it's the Thin Man series that, that caught my attention and I thought, suppose, Suppose the weight of the characters, not in bodily weight, not on the scale, but the, the, the principal character were the woman. Um, here she comes, having been raised by, in mining camps by Papa in the far west in Colorado, and then he struck it rich, and she is an heiress. She has money. And having grown up sleeping under bare rugs in itchy wool union suits in those sub-zero winters um, with chuck wagons, sometimes with a cold cabin in the winter, sometimes. And then, and then with all this wealth, she's assigned tutors and she's to become a quote unquote lady. So... When Roddy comes from a from a nearly bankrupt old moneyed family, um, because Papa hopes investing in the silver mines will restore the family's wealth, um, and when he Roddy, a law student who has a hobby of mixing some new drinks, cocktails, and he see he sees Valentine Mackle. Uh, in the Silver Dollar Saloon and says, want to see a trick? And the drink that he produces for her is called the Blue Blazer. It is a real drink. It involves pouring hot water in one mug and scotch whiskey with a little sugar, a little lemon juice, in the other back and forth, so alighted, it's a blazing blue arc. Roddy shows off. The two are, are fated for life together. But it will be a life together principally on the East Coast because Papa dies. The Virginia City silver boom finally is played out. Val Valentine, she was born on Valentine's Day. Um, she is rich, she is independent, but she has also got herself in this lady empire in Gilded Age, New York, and Newport. Um, and so let me, if I may, Nancy, go on a bit. Val is not simply concocted out of nowhere. In my research into the Gilded Age and into the West, I see two characters. One is John Mackey, an Irish immigrant. 
He fled the potato famine. He worked in the Brooklyn shipyards, learned how to timber ships, made his way west. He became a very rich, arguably as rich as anybody in America from his silver strike. Smart, he is Val's papa. Now, who is Val? I got Val from Evelyn Walsh, who grew up in exactly those, those rocky mountains until her papa, he struck gold. She became Evelyn Walsh McLean and lived on the East Coast and married McLean, a newspaper baron's heir. Now she in adult life had, had, a, had tragedy, but let me point out one trigger for my character. Evelyn said, I sleep on satin sheets now, but I never forget the wool union suit in the sub-zero winters in the West. So she had both lives together. And that becomes for me, the opportunity for Val, for Valentine, living in both worlds. There it is, those two. John Mackey, for whom the School of Mines is named at the University of Nevada, Reno, with a bronze statue of him. He is her papa, Val's, and she is modeled on Evelyn Walsh McCain. So nonfiction gets its opportunity for fiction. Oh, that is just absolutely fascinating, um, especially, you know, because I think readers are always interested in knowing where the characters come from. So, you know, it, it's it's really interesting how you were able to find real life role models, so to speak, that then became the characters with, I'm sure, very many changes, but still the essence of them and the essence of their background. So I'm I'm gathering that, you know, here's Val in, in this Gilded Age society. She must have been very different from most of the women there who um, I, I would think would be, you know, very, I don't know, what would be the term for the women in those days? Certainly not independent, I wouldn't think. But many of them did have, uh, have inherited wealth. And then, of course, wealth from from their marriages um but there and they were to to contribute to charities uh most likely charities far away elsewhere in the world um so they never actually saw those uh who were the um the recipients of their of their donation donations the the hobbies um uh were were those that that Val in the book, she, she tried out um, flower painting, uh, collecting uh, porcelains, perhaps. Uh, Val tries book binding, um, and it's, it's something of a, of a chore. Um, but what she finds when she and Roddy uh, begin to begin to investigate the possibility that a poisoner is afoot in society and that their good friend is threatened. Uh, then they become, and Val becomes, the term amateur sleuth. Uh, now, in mystery fiction, the amateur sleuth has a, a certain set of challenges for a writer. If you are a licensed private eye or a cop, even a lady detective, you have literally licensed to practice the trade. So your presence at a, at a scene of murder or bludgeoning or, or, or visit to a jail is just assumed to be part of the job. The amateur sleuth needs a reason and so in the first book, A Gilded Death, it's the protection of a friend uh, who is threatened with possibly poisoning, possibly a carriage accident that would be proved fatal, 
Uh, and then after Val and her husband, Roddy, and remember, he is an attorney. And as a sideline, because he got so interested in mixing cocktails, and regrettably, his parents fear that he got addicted to that alcohol. No, 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 no. He's just interested in the aesthetics and the compounds. It's almost chemistry for him. But he is much in demand by resorts and steamship lines and railroads and so on to provide signature cocktails. Uh, so for the, for the Cunard line, what would it be for the White Star special um, and on and on. But never does he want his own name attached to his inventions. So the master bartender takes the credit and Roddy does the mix. So the novels have the opportunity for the recipes. And these are real recipes of Gilded Age cocktails. We like to think that Edison did electricity and, um, and Mr. Otis developed the elevator and all this and Carnegie and Steel, but cocktails were also inventions. Um, and initially, any whiskey that was diluted or adulterated was considered impure uh, and cheapened. So it became an invention that first ice and then fruit juices and then a little the little gum syrups and and mints and oh what have we here so we had bartenders in in diamond cufflinks and diamond studs performing at the bar so roddy in his own quiet way is mixing cocktails uh, on request for these these hotels and resorts but he, he and Val are also finding personal relations to crimes that are committed. A friend of the family whose grandson uh, is suspected of murdering young women in Central Park um, or um, a former classmate of Roddy's whose, whose late wife fell down the stairs was she pushed or was it an accident? Could Roddy and his wife Val help him out? Could they go to Chicago? So Nancy, the novels, let Val and Roddy voyage to other places in the Gilded Age. They go to Gilded Age Chicago. They go to Palm Beach in the wintertime to try to find out who might have killed uh, a hotel king and coal king who died in an opera box. Um, the Gilded Age we associate with New York and with Newport, but cities and towns all over the United States were having their own version, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and of course, Chicago and those hotels in Florida. Um, it wasn't just Mar-a-Lago that came later. Um, it was Palm Beach. It was over on the West Coast. It was St. Augustine. So there's, there's a lot of geography that any Gilded Age novelist has the opportunity to venture into. Oh, that's fascinating. And I'm glad you mentioned St. Augustine. I, I had gone there once um, back in 2016 and just fell in love with it. I mean, I'm not, and I'm not even a Florida fan, right? But I just, I, I love the area and I could just imagine what it would have been like back then. You know? Well, well, yes, wonderful. And um, um, as a, you know, little, little autobiographical, um, um, I lived in West Palm, for some years as a kid. And over the holidays, the choir I was in sang at the Breakers in Palm Beach. And so Worth Avenue and the Breakers, I thought, let me just revisit, here we go. Um, and so uh, Henry Flagler's hotel, the, the, the Royal Ponciana uh, is no longer uh, in a fire. Uh, and that's another problem in the Gilded Age fires where they set or was it an accident? Um, and uh, this was an accident. So that hotel no longer exists. So I had to do a good deal of research, but I did it and I got it. And there it is. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, I think people underestimate um, how much research is involved in doing these kind of books, which, you know, for me, the books I write are not set back 
in other time periods, frankly, because I'm too lazy to do all the research. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very impressed with with all the details and everything. And and especially because you did not just have it set in one location, but by going to various areas, whether it's Chicago, whether it's down in Florida, that's an awful lot of, of research, even for somebody like yourself who has that that educational background and, and the ability to do it. It's It still takes a lot to make sure that what you're writing is historically accurate. That's so important. And, you know, anybody writing historical fiction stands to be called out on any error. And seeing errors uh, can sometimes invalidate the whole book for a reader. There's another challenge here, which is just hinted at it. It's the selectivity. How many details do you include before you you overwhelm a scene, a character, or even what that character is wearing with so much detail that two or three paragraphs in, it's just too much. Um, a reader just can close the book and go elsewhere. And those details have to be meaningful, uh, not necessarily clues, uh, but, but guidelines to the era. And so this wealth of material that somebody who does the research uh, has on tap uh, uh, requires a certain selectivity. And um, I've said to somebody, my days are type, type, type and delete <laughs> because, because uh, any particular um, uh, sort of accent about the era were those too many diamonds. Um, what about a piece of jewelry that would need to be explained? For example, Mrs. Astor wore something called, and other ladies did as well, a stomacher. So already you have the word stomach, um, which is an unpleasant word for, for a, a jewel, bejeweled, elegant, uh, gowned uh, lady. Um, and it was indeed a sort of belt of diamonds uh, right along the, the midriff. And for the opera, nothing uh, too much. Diamonds at the ears, diamonds at the neck, and that stomacher. And I think, do I want to use that word? Uh, do I want a reader to be stopped, you know, thinking of Alka-Seltzer in the middle of a paragraph? And uh, the answer, and then I would have to explain it. And that would take two or three lines. We remember as readers, and we all do this, we're reading along, reading along. Um, if the story is progressing, any word that stops us um, might need to be explained, would break the train of thought, would interrupt the story, maybe not. Uh, and belt of diamonds doesn't have doesn't have the same zing to it. No glitter there. And so, so leave that one out. So just to say, uh, and, and you as a you know contemporary, um, you know you research is a daily uh, existence, life now. And same thing for you. What do I include? What do I exclude? And why? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there exactly. it is. Yeah, I, and I know what you mean. I, I like to refer to those as speed bumps. When you're reading along and then you hit something and it just, it it actually breaks your involvement. As a reader, it breaks your involvement in the story. I and, love that, speed bumps. Yeah, it, it's just, you know, and, and a lot of times when, when, I'm, when I'm working with beta readers, reading either my short stories or the novels I'm working on, I'm, I'm always saying, tell me where the speed bumps are. Where, where did I interrupt your reading process? Where did I throw you off track? Because it may have seemed perfectly reasonable to me to have that in there. But when the reader reads it, the last thing you want to do is just distract them from what the story is. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I've noticed very recently, they're starting to be called speed cushions. Have you noticed that out in traffic? 
cushions, really? <laughs> I don't think so. One. No, <laughs> tell me another one. Right. Yeah, yeah. Unless they're really, really low, they're not cushions. Mm -hmm. So I, I am curious, is there a part of you in Val de Vere? Well, um, there has to be. <laughs> and so let me let me say, Val, she comes east from the west. She has a lot of money. Um, and Roddy is her passport into a society that does not ever fully accept her. And so uh, what part of oneself? Um, many years um, in the academy, which was very good to me, very good to me. Um, students, you know, not always interested, but, but I managed with the students and loved working with the young people. But I did not grow up in a household with books. Um, and when my colleagues, friends, would quote lines from Shakespeare or something from Sophocles or Plato, I listened. Uh, and sometimes I felt like a stand-up comic because my workarounds could not possibly tap in to the font of deeply read uh, novels or even even children's books, even um, those those you know Beatrice Potter, good for them. They knew Beatrix. I didn't know. I didn't know Winnie the Pooh. Uh, I learned them reading to my own daughters. So I think I always felt um, of something of an outsider myself, um, but in my own way, powered on. And, and I will say, when I started working on, um, started working on a book that would connect, of all things, technology, from the industrial age with literature. Um, my grandmother owned and operated a wholesale bakery. Here I was, this is in Pittsburgh, in Homewood, same area where August Wilson lived. Uh, and so as a little tyke, I was at eye level with these enormous machines, um, industrial grade machines. She bought eggs by hundreds of dozens and flour by the hundred pound bags anyway. And she turned out oatmeal cookies and, and uh, pound cake and jelly rolls. Um, and she in suede pumps with pearl earrings and that baker's apron, putting tray, steel trays of cookies into this Dantean oven. oven one spin around very slow and the cookies were done. And if she didn't get the full rack of trays off, there went the profit on that last one. So much, much later, I see these technological marvels as friendly, okay? And I see that, um, that the poet William Carlos Williams called the poem, A Machine Made of Words. And I took it seriously. Now I've gone through this long background just to say, I'm in college, university scenes, and I'm at meetings and we're having receptions and our little plastic glasses of white wine. And someone would say to me, so Cecilia, what are you working on? And I said, I'm working on the connection uh, in the late 1800s, 1900s, and into the, into the early 20th century, the connection between technology, machine technology, and literature. They couldn't get away from me fast enough, Nancy. <laughs> there I would be standing all alone with my little glass of white wine. But I went on and did it. Now, if you ask, what about your main character? She goes on and does it. Um, she will never be accepted, unlike 
her friend and Roddy's, Theo Bulkley from Brahman, Boston. He is an adoptee to society in the Gilded Age in New York, but he is a beloved adopted son. Val will always be put up with, tolerated, um, no matter. She loves Roddy, Roddy loves her, and they have a job to do in book after book. But with each one of them, Nancy, because they are amateur sleuths, the risk for me is that they become bystanders um, of the crime. They have to be in every book somehow involved. Their emotions, their lives, um, the most recent drowning pool there is in the Hudson Valley, a young woman's body found on property owned by Roddy's family. Who is it? And how is, how is the DeVere family possibly involved uh, in someone's death on their property? And they have to get involved. So there must be personal involvement and then it must be psychological involvement as well. And I think that I think that makes it for a, a better story, a deeper story, because, like you said, they're not kind of bystanders. We're just going to swoop in and fix it. But but there's also they have a stake in what's happening, not just academically. Oh, this is fascinating, but a personal stake in what's going on. Right. They are stakeholders. You bet they are. Yes, that, that is, I, I think, and and I'm I'm glad you mentioned that story about your grandmother because I'm thinking, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I mean, women back then, you know, uh, I mean, for her to be be in charge, she, so she owned her own bakery. She was the owner, or here, was here. All right, here's here's what I suspect. This has never been validated. Okay, she came from Birmingham, Alabama up to Pittsburgh, how she got there, I'll never know. I think she was a girlfriend of a man named Nicholas, Mr. Nicholas. Nicholas, I think, ran a bootlegging operation. I think the baked goods were a cover for the distribution of liquor in the 1920s. I'm convinced of it. My grandmother's closet had all these aging furs. There were seal skins, there were minks, there were, I would go in as a little kid and sort of bury my face in all the furs. Mr. Nicholas was gone and it was the Nicholas Baking Company. Um, the oven was hers, the machinery was hers. The property was owned by a Mrs. Somebody who appeared in her Packard automobile for the rent. Um, but my grandmother, Cecilia Halbert, ran the show, owned the machinery, and always referred to Mr. Nicholas um, in a kind of adulation. <laughs> but he was gone, and she, in her suede pumps, uh, and, and also as the business, now after the war, this was World War II, after the war, it became the corporate bakeries taking over. She had the distribution to the nightclubs all over Pittsburgh, Jackie Heller's Carousel, um, the Nixon. I was a little girl, I was taken there. The distribution of Bachman pretzels and Wise potato chips and the snack foods. Um, and she ran this. And after the war, my father and his trucks, and there were fleets of trucks, um, I remember going to Jackie Heller's carousel. Victor Borge was the, was the performer. I was invited onto the stage. My mother was horrified because the buckles of my Mary Janes were undone because my feet hurt. But, but at the carousel in our dinners, I was served a lobster and taught to eat a lobster with that tiny little fork and dipping it in the butter. So my memories of Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh nightclubs go back 
pretty far. So I have, once I got into the Gilded Age, a wide range of opportunity. I think you're hearing this. <laughs> Bear in mind, I don't know for sure, but I think uh, also my grandmother had a good many jewels. And as the business began to, to, to take, you know, to sink, um, the jewels were sold to keep that business going. And then it had to go. So. Wow. Wow. Mm. Family stories, but it's, it's always so fascinating, you know, especially when you, when you hear about women, because my both on both sides of of my family my my father's parents and my mother's parents they were immigrants so mm. my parents were first born here in the US but you know it's i've always been intrigued by the women who you know who really in one way or the other took on power even if they were you know they came here and didn't speak a word of english it's the idea of of women having so much power Yes. You know, yes. women having the power during World War II, they went into the factories because the men were overseas. Men came, wars over, men came back, back in the kitchen, lady. Yeah. And, you know, I'm I'm thinking, you know, when I when I think about how you created this character, Val, with her strengths and uh, her refusal to um, just become a typical Gilded Age, you know, woman, wife. Um, I'm, you know, I'm very, I'm very intrigued by that. And I'm wondering too, if, if there is something in these novels that as women are reading them, they can take away and, and kind of apply to our, our own situation, because you and I are of an age where we knew, you know, we, we grew up when we didn't have rights, then we got rights, you know, and then all of a sudden we're taking huge leaps backwards and and i'm wondering is there is there something something that that you are are hoping or had intended for people to really catch from your novels that yes she she may have been you know really quite different from the typical woman of that age but you know, nowadays it's it's almost a struggle. It's a struggle again for us to be not one of those good little white pearl housewives. It it is again. It is. I mean, it's it's in some ways it's unbelievable. What this again? Um, I I think what you're what you're implying is exactly what I hope will be a takeaway from these these novels that all have gilded in the title. Uh, in each one, uh, I try, in addition to my, my protagonist, main character Val, to bring in a historical woman who was of great consequence. And I thought today I would just mention two. One, a woman named Mary Harris, uh, living as a wife and mother of three in Memphis, her husband, a union man, um, that husband and her three children died in a yellow fever um, outbreak in Memphis. Now she had begun life as an immigrant from Ireland, had come down through Canada. After the death of her family, it's, it's really like that Janis Joplin line, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. She made her way to Chicago and began working for a milliner making hats. And what she noticed was how expensive the hats were uh, for the wealthy women who ordered them and bought them and had them custom fitted and all those feathers. And how very little the women working in the workshop sewing them fastening the feathers and the and the the jewels and and all the sorts of of accessory uh, motifs she started to go to union meetings at night and she renamed herself mother jones and she became a a 
a Victorian woman, white hair, uh, in black, always black dresses as if in mourning with a white ruffled uh, sort of scarf tie, rallying the coal miners in West Virginia, rallying them for their union rights, um, talking to them, talking to their wives in those, in those company houses, no insulation, barely making, making it from one day to the next. She became a heroic figure and was called by an opposing attorney who had her prosecuted, called the most dangerous woman in America, Mother Jones. So now we're seeing unions breaking out and sometimes women, baristas at Starbucks are leading, we'll call it the charge because day laborers of the Gilded Age have become more or less gig workers now no benefits, uh, no living income. And so, so Mother Jones won. Another woman, Florence Kelly, uh, she had uh, a more affluent life. She was the daughter of a House of Representative um, uh, guy from Philadelphia. They called him Pig Iron Kelly. Pig Iron took little Florence uh, to see a glassworks. Uh, and her father, Florence's father, uh, was just bedazzled by the furnaces blazing at night, molten glass bottles being made uh, in Western Pennsylvania, it was. What Florence saw were these little boys at midnight toiling with buckets of water um, walking, not, not with boots, but barely shod over molten glass, going from the furnace areas into the freezing winter nights with pneumonia at their doorstep. Florence vowed that in her adult life, she would try to work for the benefit of children. No more child labor, get them into school, what kind of adult life would they have if they didn't succumb to pneumonia or influenza? What would, what would illiterate children become but criminals? So she worked for, for children in school and for women as well. Women who needed to earn a living if they were at work outside the home. Now we see at least two states, Iowa and Kansas, promoting child labor. Just as in the Gilded Age, it was promoted as <clears throat> building character. Those same arguments are coming back. Well, they need to learn discipline. A little night shift won't help, um, uh, but, but help them uh, learn to, to um, to keep themselves in control uh, while earning a bit to help their families. Oh, that again. So yes, I hope that the strong women, sort of cameo presences from in the books from the Gilded Age also can take hold and send the message right to 2023 when we need it. Yeah, I mean, it's when you hear about this, it's like you almost have to stop. You're reading reading something in the newspaper or watching the news reports. You're like, wait a minute, this is happening now. I mean, you would think that would that would never happen again, and here we are again. Yes, yes, that phrase we like to use out of the question, it's back in the question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really something. Now, I, you know, I'm, I'm always curious um, why people get into writing whatever it is they write. And, and my question for you is, why did you decide to write novels, for one thing, historical or not historical? But, but was that always an interest for you to write fiction, to write novels, and then to go into historical fiction? And is it just, okay, this was a good time for you to do it? Or... Was it just a 
just like, oh, I think I'll do this now. Well, it's a long time interest that I kept at bay um, while while learning that that there is narrative skill also in nonfiction. Uh, and so, so feeling that I had I had done what I could in in nonfiction, uh, and I will I will admit that I had begun work uh, on a on a man named Griffith Jenkins Griffith, for whom Griffith Park is named in in uh, in L.A. Uh, and and La La Land was filmed there, and many many movies have been filmed there. In fact, they've got an office uh, just for that. If you want to you want to shoot something, you go in that trailer and talk to them. Um, but I started to think, hmm, this will be some years. There'll be a lot of footnotes, um, a big bibliography. Would anybody care? Um, uh, would anybody want to publish this? I don't know. It was just about at that moment that literary agent Deirdre Mullane said, let's have a phone conversation. She said, hmm, Julian Fellows has a Gilded Age project under contract. It's going to pop one of these days. Here's what I'm thinking. Now, Nancy, bear in mind, I had been working in nonfiction, principally um, from the, call it the bottom of the shot glass, um, from, from a, a book, uh, from the wage workers, now the gig, gig workers, uh, barely able to earn livings, from Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, I taught it almost every, every year. That's where I'd been, been working. And Deirdre said, hmm, you're the client of mine who could do this. How about Mrs. Astor? How about a book we're thinking, what would Mrs. Astor do? You're the one who could pull this all up. You've been working in this area. And so I, I did, uh, and it was fun. And then three books on cocktails, the Gilded Age, Gilded Age cocktails, Jazz Age, and most recently, mid-century, and I thought, I am cocktailed out except for Roddy. Let him mix the cocktails. I'm ready. And I already knew that I like an expansive form. Um, I like something that can, that can both tie me down and pump me up for months and months. And this is going to be fiction, mystery fiction, and Evelyn McLean, who grew up Ethelyn Walsh McLean in those Rocky Mountain mining camps, and John Mackey, God bless that Irish immigrant, who who at last struck it rich and worked, worked and worked till the to the very end. They're my people. So uh, that, and I can tell just just by how you're talking about it, how much you enjoy the process. You know, that it's, I am sure there were times when, you know, you might have hit a wall or whatever, but just in general, it just sounds like you like it, you love it, that it is fun to bring these characters to life. And, and, and I can really relate to that because that's how I feel when I'm working on it's not to say that there aren't days where you're like, I cannot do another round of revisions to this thing. <laughs> that's that's just the labor part of it, but the creative part of it is is the most fun. Is is feeling like even though you made the characters after a certain point, they become their own people. That's that's true. That's true, and and I won't say that um, each book after the last becomes easier. That's not the word to use, uh, but the, the knowledge of who you're writing about is already there. Uh, so that you can start from that base and build. Uh, I also think 
that no reader should see you toiling. No reader should see that day when you think, what? <laughs> it's like, help, you know, isn't it lunchtime? <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, and so in a way you're, you're weaving a kind of a spell. I have at different times likened um, the, 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 I'll call it the, I hate the word product, but let me use it for a minute. Uh, to synchronize swimming. Above the waterline, it just looks effortless. Below the waterline, pumping like crazy. Um, and so some of that, but no reader should be subjected to what goes on below that waterline. No, 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 no. Right. Um, I mean, yeah. we, we, wanna, and we want them to be entertained. We don't want them to, we don't want them to see us sweating. You right, know? <laughs> right, yes, right, right. You've got it. <laughs> So I, I always like to, and, and this has been such a fun interview, I have to tell you, but I, I always like to close my interview with my last question, which is, how do you define success as a writer? What makes you feel successful as a writer? I think connecting with a reader is is everything. Um, uh, it's a little, a little story, just as drowning pool, a, a gilded drowning pool um, was in just pre-production. And, and um, uh, you know, those, those books that, that go out to some, re to some re possible reviewers um, early um, go out. Uh, and one reviewer, uh, this is not a friend, this is not family, it's a reviewer I never, I, don't know this person, but this person got in touch with me because there was a glaring error on page 207, <laughs> right? And, and it was just wonderful to hear what this person likes. Oh, I'm so glad. Oh, you've got to keep this going. Oh, Val and Roddy are favorites. I never get enough of them. And of course I'm drinking this all in um, and I, I, I said, oh, that on page 207, I thought I'd fixed it. I'm gonna fix it right now. How could I have done that? You know? And I'll, I'll tell you what it is. Um, I had a character say, ah, it is the longest night of the year. It is the equinox. And of course, oh no, no. And so, so this reviewer seeing this preliminary copy, um, tr trying to do me a favor, can you possibly, and I thought I had fixed it. And so, so that, but it's the connection with the reader. It's knowing that somebody, somebody gets it. That's what it's all about. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that, that is why we write. I mean, we may start out writing for ourselves, to see if to see where we're going to go with it but then ultimately it's even if it's just one person we hear from but sometimes that is all we need to just keep us going you know to make us feel like we've got it because that that is always um i don't know about you but that's always a fear of mine is did i do this well enough am i going to make the connection there is always that. And let's agree when the final pro, I hate that word, when the project, and sometimes we see, uh-oh, that sentence. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Forgive that sentence, reader. <laughs> Come on. Yes. Oh, Nancy, I know that was your final question. And no, but, that's, <laughs> but no, I mean, that's, that is, you know, that, that is, um, that is so important. And, and this way too, I mean, it, it matters to us. We, we don't ever want to be, um, I remember reading a review, somebody had posted a review about another well-known author who like 20, 30, 50 books, whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, this was like, you know, a book that's like, you know, longest in, in the series and everything. And they're like, oh, she just phoned it in. And, and I'm thinking, wow, I mean, that's a really good insult. You never want to just phone it in. We no. want to, we want to do the best we can because it's important to us. That's right. That's right. Yes. And, and I think sometimes 
writers can be, I'm going to say victimized by, by editors, publishers who insist that surely you can get another book out within a name some time frame. And that can, that can sort of lead to kind of phoning it in. Um, well, we're scheduling publicity for, you know, for the fall or for the spring. And so, so, uh, you know, give the writer Cut that writer some slack, please. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. Well, I have to tell you, I have so enjoyed having you on the show. This has just been a fascinating conversation. And and I really wish you a lot of success with, with the next Roddy and Val story. The next one will be Death in a Gilded Frame. I like that so much. Well, I am looking forward to it. So thanks again for being part of the show. And thanks to everyone who joined us here at Living the Writing Life. Thank you.